Chapter 5 of Seven Autumn Leaves from Fairyland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire Whitaker. Seven Autumn Leaves from Fairyland by E. Cunningham. The Two Princes, Part 2. As they reached the foot of the mountains, they entered upon plains over which they travelled a long time, meeting no adventures, but with little to eat and scanty water to drink, often living for days upon roots and berries. They became ragged and footsore, their only foot covering being grass sandals which they wove themselves. To all appearance the country was like their own, and it began to fade from their minds that it was enchanted land. Still each day they walked bravely on, intent on their errand, never sorrowing that they had come, and rejoicing in the good fortune of each other's company. One afternoon, as they came to a spring of water, they found an old woman sitting by it, crying and moaning over her broken crutch. They asked the matter, and she showed them her hut, high on a distant hill, which she said she could never reach again, but must lie there to be killed by the beasts that came to drink of the spring that night. She was very old and dirty and deformed, and on coming closer, the knight saw she was afflicted with leprosy, a dreadful disease which passes from one to another by the touch. But without hesitation, kindly and courteous, the knights lifted her up, bade her be of good cheer, and though far out of their way, carried her up the rocky hill to the door of her hut. The old woman said to herself, as she saw their courtesy, These are gentle knights bound on that hopeless errand, and not swineherds, as I thought at first, and she wept still more when they put her down. What trouble now? said the knights, but she hobbled in without answering, and they only heard as she went the words. Poor youths, even if they break the mirror, they will not kill the griffin. They could make nothing of that, except that danger still lay before them, which they knew already, so they continued on their way as before. One evening they came upon a wood which lay in their path, and entering it, immediately found themselves separated. They could not see how, but walk as they might, a tree stood in the way, and trying to avoid it, they ran on upon another. The light was dim and fading, adding to the difficulty, and soon Prince Resolute lost all patience, and rushing angrily to the left and right, calling to his companion, he struck himself with such violence against the trunks that he fell senseless. Prince Silvertongue fared better. After trying, like his friend, to find a way through the trees, he suddenly recalled what they both now nearly forgotten, that this was an enchanted land, and he saw in a moment that this was an enchanted forest. He stopped at once, and addressing the trees, said, O oh, fair spirits, by the memory of what you once were, give us passage through your domain. Instantly a road opened through the wood to him, but he would not go on until he found his friend who lay still senseless not far off. Prince Silvertongue raised him in his arms and carried him until he reached a spring, and there, after a while, he recovered his senses. They travelled on now with more care, and soon seeing a tall castle, they considered whether they had better keep in the road or ask for shelter for a night. As danger was everywhere, they decided for the castle, and knocked loudly on the outer gate. They were well received, and the warden at the gate saying that his mistress entertained all passing strangers, and after washing themselves of dust and combing their now tangled hair, 
for they had not been in a house for many weeks, they entered the hall. Two ladies of middle age welcomed them, and inquired their business in travelling through the country. The knights frankly told their errand, but said nothing about their adventures, and after supper they were shown to their room, the ladies going with them to the door. Prince Resolute walked in quickly. Prince Silvertongue, more courteous, stood bowing and stepped backwards in, when the door fell to with some violence, and he heard the click of a heavy lock, and at the same time a low laugh outside. He stood listening. We are trapped, he thought. But where is my companion? For he heard no sound behind him. One must be wary in the enchanted land. And just then the words of the old woman flashed across him, and now he felt that on his caution and good wits depended their success in their lives. He doubted to look round, for all was silence in the room. He bethought him of the glittering blade of his dagger, and holding it up, he saw behind him as in a glass. No one was in the room. His companion was gone. The most striking object was an oval mirror with strangely glittering surface. Walking carefully backward, without looking round, he reached the mirror, and with a backhanded stroke with his dagger, broke it into shivers. He now looked about. The room was square and large, the stone walls hung with woven cloth called tapestry, with figures of men worked on it of the size of life, and there was a few rough pieces of furniture. The strange thing was, what had become of Prince Resolute? He felt cautiously on the floor, but could find no trapdoor. He then examined the tapestry, and it was not long before he discovered, in one of the life-size figures, that of his companion, enchanted beyond a doubt, and enchanted through looking in the mirror, now fortunately broken. How should he set him free? Enchantments sometimes last hundreds of years, and meantime his mother would die and his own life pass away. Still, the faithful prince never thought of forsaking his friend. He only resolved in his mind what method might set him free. The mirror was gone. That would help. He remembered that the light of the sun sometimes dispelled enchantments, and on looking at the windows he found the sunlight was carefully kept out by heavy curtains. The tapestry was too heavy to move as it hung, so... With his dagger he cut out the strip that held his friend, and then, remembering that probably all the figures represented living men, he spent the night cutting the whole tapestry into strips. By early morning he had thrown all the strips from the windows to the bank below, and the windows, being too high to escape from, waited for the rising sun for the result. As his first beams fell upon the bank, there rose a great rustling and sighing, and immediately the bank was crowded with living men, who looked about them in amazement. Prince Resolute soon recalled them to themselves, and pointing to his friend in the castle window, they all hastened to the castle door to release him. This they did without difficulty, for no one in the castle looked for such an unusual ending to their night's work, and so they were unprepared. Some of their disenchanted would have slain all in the castle, but our two knights thought that the mischief was stopped by the breaking of the mirror, and though they put some good men in it to protect travellers instead of harming them, they left the two ladies and their servants untouched. We can all imagine the joy of Prince Silvertongue and the gratitude of Prince Resolute, whose life had now twice been saved. In truth, the debt of each to each other was equal, for Prince Silvertongue would have perished at the pass but for Prince Resolute's determination, but neither thought of what he had done for the other.
They now journeyed through a settled country, but they saw that the houses were guarded and barred as if some great danger always threatened. When they sought entrance for food or shelter, no one answered to their calls. Early one morning, when near a rocky hill, they saw that the ground was covered with bones, while the air was sickening with a noisome smell as of slaughtered beasts. As they came up, they found the side of the hill was hollowed into a lofty cave, and from it projected the scaly tail of an immense dragon or griffin, evidently asleep within. It is the griffin, said Prince Silvertongue. What fortune for us that we passed unharmed. They went quickly and quietly on, and when at half a day's journey distant, stopped to rest at one of the country houses, which they found open, and they were admitted, they asked why the houses were so closed and forsaken, and the people told them that the griffin ate men, as well as beasts, and had half-stripped the land, and, living always in terror of a dreadful death, many drowned themselves and their children, rather than live for such a fate. Then our good knights consulted with each other, and they agreed that whatever happened, they must go back and assault the griffin, or they could never return home in honour. They looked about for weapons, but all they could find were two ox gourds, which are staves of oak, about the length of a man, with sharp iron points. With these and their daggers they returned to fight a battle, which would have been odds against a hundred men, clad in steel and armed with sword and spear. But we remember that this is an enchanted land, where the tough heart counts for more than the tough hand, and we will hope for the best until we see our good princes lose courage. There was no lack of it when they came to the cave, and saw the monster just arousing from his sleep. They rushed upon him, and as he opened his frightful jaws to swallow this sudden enemy, Prince Resolute, who was foremost, planted his upgoud upright between them, so that they were transfixed as he tries to close them. The prince fell back, nearly insensible, overcome by his horrid breath, but Prince Silvertongue, sitting astride his body, plunged the ox gourd deep into his very heart. The creature rolled and floundered in agony, trying to reach his enemies with his tail or claws, but though they were thrown to the ground and were crushed and bruised and covered with the blood and foam which came from him, they managed to avoid his blows and again and again stabbed him deep in vital parts, until with a snort and bellow that shook the hill, he rolled over upon his back dead. It was some time before the princes recovered from their bruises, and from the effects of the poisonous breath of the griffin, but at last they were able to crawl away to the roadside rivulet, where they bathed and drank, and were then able to examine the body. They were themselves astonished at their victory, and could only suppose that they were helped by the good fairies to have prevailed in so unequal a struggle. They were surprised to find a gold chain about his neck, to which hung a small gold key. They cut a link and slipped off chain and all. Attached to the key was a little label, also of gold, on which was written, Look that you keep me with might and main, or toil and danger are all in vain. Prince Silvertongue immediately placed the chain about Prince Resolute's neck, saying, If we have might and main enough to keep you, you shall surely be at hand to unlock your door when we come to it. To their surprise, the chain fastened itself, shrinking to the proper length, and they knew then that it concerned their enterprise in some manner. They now hastened on their way, both because of the lost time, and to avoid the greater delay of meeting the people of the country, who would have kept them out of gratitude for so great a deliverance. 
they soon passed into a hilly country, rising into mountains, and found themselves travelling along a ravine, which finally sank into a deep chasm, with sheer sides hundreds of feet down, and beyond the ordinary leap of a man across. As they walked, they were attracted by the twittering of a bird on the opposite side, and looking for the reason, saw that he was fascinated by a large snake which sought to eat him. Close at hand on the side of the small tree he was on was his mate, also under the spell of the snake's eyes. The princes looked about for a stone, but none was at hand. They shouted, but in vain. The snakes paid no heed. "'What shall we do?' said Prince Silvertongue. "'The chasm is wide. Shall we risk life for two birds?' "'It is to help the distress,' said Prince Resolute. "'It is our duty, and we must leap the chasm.' Then both princes, exerting all their strength, let the wide chasm, and the snakes glided away. The birds rose up, hovered an instant above the heads of the princes, and then shot high in air and disappeared. It seemed to me, said one, that that bird that almost touched my head carried a message of comfort and hope to my mother, and the same thought had come to both. They crossed shortly at the head of the chasm, and descended into a beautiful plain, full of fruit trees and glittering streams. As they passed along the road, the smiling people offered them entertainment, and pressed them to stay at their houses and tell their adventures. But they took only bread and water, and pressed on, for now so much time had passed that they feared they might be too late, even if they gained the leaves. They left this pleasant country behind, and now they approached a singular spectacle. It looked as if the whole country before them was covered in frostwork. When they came to it, they found it was a true forest of silver. The leaves were light and fluttering, the small twigs bent and the branches waved, but it was all of purest silver. The road, well kept and smooth, lay beneath the spreading trees. We approach some great adventure, said Prince Silvertongue. Let us stop at this brook, wash and prepare ourselves, and in the morning, after prayer to God, we will enter the wood. So they passed the night upon the border, and in the morning they entered the silver wood. It was still more beautiful when within. The light came through the silver leaves as if moonlight, and even the broken twigs and branches upon the ground were all alike of purest silver, chased and encrusted, as in frostwork. So they walked on, wary and vigilant, prepared for any snare that might lurk in this beautiful place, but full of delight with the glory of the scene. By and by, they saw in front another line of forest, where the silver seemed to change to yellow. To their astonishment, they now entered upon a forest of gold, as perfect in leaf, twig and branch as that of silver. The golden light through the leaves made their road one of royal splendour. In silence, but full of wonder and admiration, they continued their course, still keen and watchful, still looking for their adventure. And now in front, they saw the waving green of a natural forest. Soon they entered that, and if they had before enjoyed the beauty of silver and gold, they found this more lovely still. The sunlight flickered through, softened by the grateful colour. A thousand birds sung among the branches, and the many shades, from the tender shoots of the birch to the dark hues of the fir, gave a charm beyond the others. Still without halting, they walked swiftly and warily on, and now through the trees they came in sight of high walls. On reaching them, 
they found that they towered above the trees and stretched out of sight on either hand. Smooth and high, they were impossible to scale. The road now ended at the wall, but in the middle was a small door, just large enough to admit a man, locked and fast. The griffin key, said Prince Silvertongue. Prince Resolute stooped quickly and fitted it to the lock. The door flew open and the princes stepped within. They saw but one object. Before them in the centre of widespread smoothest turf stood the tree of health, a vivid green, full and vigorous, the reward of their courage and devotion. They hastened to it, and returning thanks to heaven for their good fortune, they each broke off a small branch, and then, overawed by the solemn stillness that prevailed, they left the enclosure and stood again in the green wood. They felt now as if all their toils were over, so great was their joy, and they made light of the long way home before them and the many dangers that still awaited them. The birds sang more gaily than ever, and when they passed into the gold and silver woods, they kept with them, flying over their heads, alighting all about and filling the air with their songs, so that the princes could not but see that they rejoiced in their joy. Thus they travelled on speedily, all the more that they were no longer footsore, for the branches they carried healed all wounds. They passed through the districts they had travelled, till they came to the country of the griffin, where already a great change had taken place. The houses were open and filled with people, the fields were being ploughed, and on every side there was life and bustle. The people crowded the road to give them welcome, and offered them their country if they would stay and be their protectors, little thinking that they were already princes and had their own kingdoms on their hands. Keeping on without stay, they came in good time to the place where they had found the old woman, who had done them such good service by her hints. When they reached it, however, they found the road blocked by a great multitude of armed men, and when they asked for peaceable passage, they were answered rudely that they could have it if they gave up their branches. The princes, though in ill plight for fight, chose to try their fortune rather than be robbed of the fruit of their long journey, and prepared with their usual courage. But as, with daggers in hand, they advanced, a great tumult arose behind their enemies, causing them to turn to meet it. They soon heard the clang of swords upon shields, and there appeared a great host of knights and soldiers, who, rushing upon the others, overthrew them and speedily drove them back to the mountains. The princes were surprised at such good fortune, and also at so many soldiers being in that unusual place. But when they met, they found they were the unfortunate people that filled the tapestry in the living wood. They learned now that he who looked into the magic mirror was either changed to a tree or hung in the tapestry, and that its destruction had restored them all to life. They were all so grateful to their deliverer that they looked about for some means of serving him, and soon hearing that the people of this wicked country meant to stop the travellers if they succeeded and returned and steal their branches from them, they lay ready in the woods, prepared to take their part. So they came at the timely moment, and our princes were saved from a great peril, which I do not think they could have overcome by themselves. These grateful people wanted to follow the princes for fear of further dangers, but the fairies had said they must journey alone, so they separated with many friendly words. When they came to the hill with the old woman's hut, they climbed up to reward her for her fortunate words. 
A touch from the branches made her well and whole, and she told them, then, that she was once rich and beautiful, but that having warned some of those who were searching for the tree of health, of the snares that lay before them, the enchanters had crippled and deformed her, and stricken her with leprosy, so that she had to go to live alone in the hut on the hill. She was choked by unseen hands if she tried to warn again, and she could only mutter the words they had heard, in hopes that they would happen to notice them. Next they reached the rocky path up the mountains of the sun, and looked to meet the grim lions, but none were there. It was still and lonely, and so, steadily ascending, they reached the high wall of rock that closed the pass. On this side it was smooth as a wall of glass. No ring hung, no sign of an opening. They stood considering how they could pass, and, if impossible, what road elsewhere there could be. Suddenly, Prince Silvertongue spied a narrow hole, and, looking closely, they found it was of a shape of a rough keyhole. Joy and hope filled their hearts. They tried the griffin key, and instantly a small door of stone began to slide into the side of the mountain. The key caught in the hole, however, and Prince Resolute was obliged to take the chain quickly from his neck as the door slid in, carrying the key with it. Without delay they passed through, and the door shut as quickly as it opened. What became of the key remains unknown, for now the solid rock stood between them and it, and they had no taste to pull at the bronze ring which they saw still hung in its former place. They gladly descended the mountains, rejoicing at being in the world again and out of the enchanted land. They had still the river and the desert before them, and then they would be in their own countries again. The first they did not much fear, but the second they could not cross without food and water, and unless they found dates, they would have no food, and they had nothing to carry water in. But they hoped for the best, and kept up good hearts. They reached the river, and found it so shrunken by the summer heats, that they crossed it without trouble, and went gaily on towards the borders of the desert. They passed the rocky interval, they turned the last curve. Below lay the green valley of the little river, and lo, upon the banks, Banners were waving, tents were pitched, tethered horses were grazing, and before them were all the signs of a royal encampment. That we may not be lost in the amazement that overtook the princes, we must go back to the little birds, set free by them upon the now distant mountains of the enchanted land, at the risk of their own lives. They were, in truth, enchanted birds, and when they saw the princes risk their lives to save theirs, they would not rest till they had returned good for good. So first they flew back with the message of comfort to the mothers, and, as the princes had then long been gone, and hope of their return had begun to fade, these messages perhaps saved their lives for their son's return, for they were becoming very heart-sick, and that is bad for those who are also body-sick. Then the birds kept watch over the progress of the princes, and when they saw them well on their return, and that the desert would be a sore trial at the last, they carried word to their mothers, and each sent a good leader with a thousand horsemen and a good store of food to await her prince on the further border of the desert. Great was the surprise of the two leaders when they met, and greater still when, after their explanations, they found they had come upon the same errand. They agreed to encamp together and await in the same place for the return of their princes. So each day, from early morn till darkness fell at night, they watched the rocky road, expecting to see appear one or both of their princes, dressed in knightly armour, though perhaps rusty and stained, and riding the gallant horses upon which they had set forth. 
We know well how different was their case, how travel-stained and ragged was their dress, how thin and gaunt their bodies, how haggard their faces, worn with want of food and sleep, how tangled their hair and beard, the only covering of their heads, and now for long exposed to sun and rain. Their leather suits were only kept from falling off by strings of twisted vines, and were full of rents and holes, and their foot covering was the half-worn-out grass sandals woven by themselves. So when they appeared at the brow of the hill, pausing to look at the unexpected sight beneath, the watchers doubted whether they were desert robbers or wandering beggars. As they soon came on, however, they concluded they were the latter, and perhaps might have news of their princes which brought out the captains to inquire. The princes, for their part, had already recognised the banners of their own countries, and also some of the soldiers, and came forward joyously, each, however, still ignorant that the other was a prince, or had friends in the gallant company before them. When they came near, and the captains were about to call in a loud and harsh voice for them to stop, each captain, at the same moment, discovered the little boughs they carried, and so, being led to look intently at the bearers, each discovered his master in the seeming beggar. So now behold the captains and their officers, hastening forward and throwing themselves in the dust at the feet of our wayworn travellers. The princes raised them up and embraced them, and then turned to each other, full of new amazement. What? You also a prince? each cried, and fell upon each other's necks, overjoyed to find that they were brothers in everything. Each had feared to injure their friendship by telling the other that he was a prince, so each had kept his secret to himself. When they found their mothers were still alive and waiting for them with the utmost anxiety, the princes were full of haste to pursue their way. They were soon bathed and dressed in princely fashion and mounted on noble horses. They smiled to each other at the transformation, but each could scarcely recognise his late companion. But the grace and gentle manners of each were the same, under their rags as under cloth of gold, and they said laughingly to each other, I ought to have known you were a prince, in any clothes. In a few hours the tents were struck, the little river deserted, and the horsemen on their march across the desert. Being well provided with everything, they crossed without difficulty, stopping at the desert spring midway. They separated at the border of the desert, promising lifelong friendship, and each reached his own company to restore his beloved mother to perfect health. Their mutual promise was well kept, and to the end of their lives the princes remained fast friends and allies, and their people found that each had gained a portion of the other's gifts, Prince Silvertongue being more resolute, and Prince Resolute more ready of speech. Splendid, said Jack. I mean the part about the griffin. But they ought to have had a scrimmage with the lions, said Ned. I like scrimmages. End of chapter 5 The Two Princes Part 2